You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. Phyllis Chesler is a best-selling author, a longtime feminist activist, and a retired psychotherapist. She has organized political, legal, religious, and human rights campaigns across the world. Yet she, like so many other second-wave feminists, is being erased by mainstream media, academia, and third-wave feminism. The author of 18 books and a central figure in the women's liberation movement of the 60s and 70s, Phyllis has never played it safe. She has always been, as she calls it, politically incorrect. Hence the name of her new book, A Politically Incorrect Feminist, creating a movement with bitches, lunatics, dykes, prodigies, warriors, and wonder women. I spoke with her over the phone about her experiences in the movement her perspectives on today's feminist politics, and what it means to be politically incorrect. Here's that interview. As somebody who was not born until 1979, I just can't imagine what it would have felt like to be there when the second wave women's liberation movement began. It must have been so exciting and thrilling and challenging also, of course, I wonder if you can tell me a bit about that. How did you first get involved? What was that experience like? What was it like to be there when all of this was happening? Well, I have to say that the decades that preceded it explain why it happened. And we were living in a fundamentalist country as girls. We were not women. And everything was forbidden. Everything was not allowed. Thus... By the time, in my case, I married a Muslim from Afghanistan and didn't expect to be kept in Purda for five months in Kabul, which really showed me something important about women's status worldwide. And when I came back, I joined the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, but nothing was the same as feminism rising. That was a moment in history, an opening in history that we have not seen again. Everyone knew everything and went everywhere and everything that we thought and did, we who had been nothing, nobodies, anything that we analyzed, any press conference we called, any demonstration, it was headlines, it was in the news, for whatever that's worth. I don't think it's worth enough. But... What was, for me, especially thrilling was most of my professors had been men in graduate school and, for that matter, in college, and I discussed ideas with men, not with women, for the most part, with a few exceptions. Now, women were everyone and everything that mattered and ideas were tripping off our tongues, and we were big time, whoever we were, and that was quite an int- a different kind of introduction to reality where we made the difference. And I, I write about this in the book. I tried to capture it. Uh, and it was not hard. You must understand that. It was easy. It was like a hundred thousand or maybe a million and a half Noras opened the door in Ibsen's play and all walked out into the street and out of the marriage at the same moment. 
it was easy. And it has been hard ever since. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it was that the radical second wave happened at that particular moment? You know, from your perspective, what precipitated that collective uprising and all the incredible theory, writing, um, publications, activism that came out during those years? Well, there were really three streams that made up the mighty second wave. The first was really civil rights. It was Betty Friedan's A Feminine uh, Mystique and National Organization of Women or for Women. And it was all the civil rights, equal rights, legislation, lawsuits. That was one part. Then another part was all of the women who'd been badly treated in the civil rights and anti-war movements had had enough and they had street savvy and they had, um, they knew how to make demonstrations happen very artfully. And they walked out and took all their best stuff into the feminist movement. And they, they did memorable demonstrations but then the third wave that is much undervalued, and I didn't even realize it until I started writing this book, is the transformation of the professions that were previously mainly all-male professions. We transformed them inch by inch with feminist knowledge and feminist ideals and, and feminist magic. And these were the three tributaries of the second wave. Um, why? I think women were educated on a mass basis, uh, more so perhaps than ever before, at least in this country, if not in history. And, you know, that's such a good question. I don't think we have the answers yet in terms of historians uh, mulling it over. Why does a movement arise at a certain moment and catch fire? And never since. I mean, I think that the second wave really continues, that the third and fourth waves are much smaller continuations of what was begun in 1963. The radical um, element was really 63 to at most 75 and it was over, or even 73, it was more tame thereafter. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess we can talk about this a little bit later, um, because it comes up in some of my later questions. But it's interesting you say that, because I have started, you know, over the past few years, seeing the third wave is not so much a continuation of the, the radical second wave, but almost as a backlash. I think they really failed second wave feminists in a lot of ways and failed to, you know, hang on to that theory and that work and that activism and that analysis. Um, 100%. But, 100%, 100% but, no, no, I agree with you 100%. But they also stood on our shoulders without knowing whose shoulders they were standing on. Mm -hmm. And they really believed that they could have it all. And didn't understand the fearful price that must be paid. Always. No exceptions. And uh, very few exceptions. And, and, you know, in their way, even though they said, Mommy, you're bad and we 
we are going to kill you and forget you and go opposite you and the pendulum will swing and you'll see. Even though there was that dynamic, at the same time, there were women in all the professions in from the mid-1970s through the mid-1980s through the mid-1990s through all of the 21st century that really have continued our work. I think you're right. The academic world and the media world have... Uh, have failed, are not radical, are not visionary, are not, they don't have universalist values. They've become hostage to, to a weird kind of Stalinism and multicultural relativism, which I've written about, and to do so is classed as you're a dreadful traitor and a conservative, to say that, that, that we've lost our radical moxie. Which So I agree with you, it's true, but there's also, I mean, I'm thinking, I work with mothers who've been battered and who've lost custody unjustly to exceedingly bad guys, and all over America, and for that matter, all over the world, and they are wondrous warriors, very beaten up, so metaphorically, and their advocates continue with a radical vision, one that was politically incorrect in the 80s when I published Mothers on Trial, The Battle for Children and and Custody, and remains politically incorrect, below the radar, not sexy, no, just mothers and children. So I can give you other examples of the continuation of good work. Yeah, yeah, I'd be interested to know. Um, I guess... I, yeah, I mean, I think maybe let's let's talk a little bit more about that a bit later. But I think, I mean, your points about the media, um, I think, are interesting because I think that what the media covers is not necessarily, you know, in touch with what's really going on on the ground. So, in terms of what most people think of when they think about the second wave, there are a few pivotal moments, um, you know, the Miss Universe protest, things like that. But uh, what do you see as as the pivotal moments in terms of what really launched the second wave and in terms of accomplishments achieved during the second wave? Well, now you have women astronauts and women, very few, but women CEOs, and you have women who bridge, uh, who build bridges and tunnels, and women in the police and fire departments. It's unheard of, unheard of. You have women physicians. Granted, more women in medical school is has led to a devaluation of medicine or being a physician. More women in science. I mean, there were never any. These were women in law, women sitting on the bench. This is like astounding. Never before. Firsts, one after the other, in every kind of field. So that's an accomplishment. Now, it may not be a radical enough accomplishment. And certainly, I would be the first to argue that women's studies is a complete disappointment, a failure, a betrayal, an embarrassment. But to be fair, the disappearance of feminist knowledge a la Dale Spender's wonderful book on that subject, Women of Ideas and What Men Have Done to Them, 1983, Australian scholar. Um, We have seen, in my lifetime certainly, the disappearance of the best and the brightest minds of my time, 
by the late 1970s, if even that late, we were all out of print. Mm -hmm. We were out of print. We were not being taught. That means had, for example, Lynn Farley's excellent sexual harassment in the workplace been taught, had it been included in the, um, <laughs> in the curriculum, which it was not, it was just out of print, then maybe the At Me Too movement would have happened by the late 1970s. It wouldn't have stopped, would have continued, and wouldn't have just concerned men high profile in entertainment and media, but rather factory foremen, uh, foremen in charge of agricultural workers, office managers, the whole thing. Because men, until now, and still today, think wherever they are, it's a brothel. And the women are there for them, and that for the right to work, which used to be definitely true for all factory girls, quote-unquote, the right to work, you have to sleep with the boss. Mm -hmm. And that is being challenged, and we challenged it. I gave a keynote speech at the first-ever conference on rape in 1971 in New York City. And unfortunately... It didn't. It led to rape crisis hotlines and maybe different procedures in hospitals for rape victims. Maybe a little bit better police treatment. Maybe not. Very much a function of class, race, ethnicity, etc. Um, yes, it led to some eventual transformation of legislation when rape was alleged. But really, the world is just a brothel to men in power over women. And that's something that we challenged at the get-go, immediately. I wrote about it in Women in Madness, and everybody was on it. Well, all of us together, as we weren't written about anymore, as our work wasn't taught anymore, as our work went out of print, as our ideas were taken for granted, but also um, neutralized, sanitized, it didn't make enough of a difference in terms of sexual violence against women. Look at the world globally. It needs feminist radical thinking more than ever, and I work with tribal women who get it and who need it, but in Pakistan and Afghanistan, it's a little hard, even though there are, there are at Me Too laptop moments and movements everywhere. Um, so... I think the disappearance of feminist knowledge mm -hmm. systematically and disappearance, not in just in general, but in women's studies in particular, so that the ruling passions became a concern with the right of Sharia law, as if that's a profound statement against racism, which it's not, over and above a concern with the occupation of women's bodies worldwide. Women's studies doesn't teach... I don't, if you, I don't know if you're familiar with this, because it's embarrassing. A lot of transgender, Caribbean, black theology at the Ivy Leagues in women's studies. Mm -hmm. Not what do you do if a woman is beaten? What do you do if a woman is raped? What do you do if a woman... Uh, is not being paid what she needs or what she's worth or what her male counterparts get. No concern. This yeah. is all, you know, about transgender men. 
Exactly. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because I feel like, you know, I've been trying to think about what has led to the version of so-called feminism that we're seeing today that is so focused on um, these identities that aren't really rooted in material reality and this kind of feminism that doesn't have anything to do with real women's lives. Like you say, you know, real women are still being beaten and raped and, you know, are being sexually harassed or discriminated against at work, um, so on and so forth. And, and then in women's studies, which is now, of course, called gender studies or queer studies, not even women's right, studies right. anymore, they're not even talking about real women's lives. No, there's no women. There's, in fact, the whole transgender, I, I risk whatever, it's, it's the whole transgender cult is another face of male backlash. Mm-hmm. And women's studies was absorbed into the academy if it made, when I taught women's studies when I founded it at City University of New York. It was rocking and rolling. It was a threat. It got me into trouble. I couldn't get promoted. I had to fight very hard for tenure. Um, Now it's very tame. And I don't understand what they're writing about. Their writing is totally incomprehensible, Mm -hmm. as if they're afraid that what they're saying might get them in trouble, so they're going to make it so obscure. And what they're saying has so little to do, as you put it, with real women and real women's lives. It's, it used to be women's studies, then it became gender studies, then it became LBGTQIAZ studies, and women were erased. Erased. Yeah, I yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I agree with you exactly. You know, the kind of writing that we're seeing coming out of academic so-called feminism, so gender studies, queer studies, and that now has translated in terms of the way that non-academic so-called feminists are writing and speaking. It's this, it's all this jargon, right? It's these empty mantras and these terms that nobody understands. And I don't even think they understand what those terms mean. And they end up saying nothing, but they're all sort of pretending as though they're saying something incredibly radical. It's so strange. Exactly. Exactly. Well, this is the language of a Mandarin. This is, it's not meant for just civilians to understand. We thought in the beginning that was really important to write in a way that any woman could understand it. Mm-hmm. Now, women are, they're, they're getting their bones, so to speak, by sounding obscure and irrelevant. And they're not under, and there are a few stars who are quite relevant in terms of getting prizes or getting invited to lecture. But I don't understand why they do it, what they're saying. Also, the concern among feminists academic and faux feminists who make marches um, is racism, not sexism. Mm -hmm. Racism has utterly trumped any concern with sexism. Instead of paying attention to femicide globally, which my generation did, Diana Russell and Nicole Vandeman in 1975 pulled together a tribunal about crimes against women in Brussels. Well, now I study honor killings I'm just completing a fifth study about it. It's femicide. It's real. It's in the West. It's serious. But you don't hear feminists talking about it, lest it seem as if it's anti-Muslim or anti-Sikh or anti-Hindu, God forbid. So they're not talking about FGM either. Mm -hmm. This is like crazy. Female genital mutilation. Not talking about it. 
uh, forget about acting against it in a forceful way, taking a stand, being brave, and also looking at the world in which we live now, which is actually, we're in such danger from jihad, from military jihad, and from the ideas that we hold about evil. We would prefer to think evil doesn't exist. We can negotiate peacefully with everyone. And if there's a mass rape of women in Germany on New Year's Eve, well, you know, it was a misunderstanding. We can't hurt their feelings. Uh, Maybe the women provoked it. This is happening all over Europe, as you know. And where are the feminists? I mean, I'm here. You're here. But in general, the the feminists of the so-called Women's March in the United States are way out to lunch. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, and and you talk about how Western feminists are are afraid to criticize some forms of male violence in your book. And, you know, I'm also, of course, troubled by the cowardice I've seen from those who claim to be feminists, but apparently prefer to be liked or to be politically correct over saying what's true or calling out very obvious misogyny in particular areas. And, you know, I'm thinking about the kind of misogyny and violence that gets a pass from these third wave feminists because it's perpetrated by or advocated for by men who identify as transgender. But there's lots of other examples like the ones you bring up. I I mean, how did this happen i don't i don't understand how feminists today some feminists i don't want to say all feminists but these mainstream feminists in any case like you say the women who are organizing the the women's marches all across north america because the same thing is happening um here in canada in terms of the women marches kind of being usurped by male interests and you know radical feminists have been pushed out of those those events but you know what what has happened why are these women prioritizing men's interests or prioritizing things like race over sex or um, this this gender identity thing over sex-based oppression? Well, it's very trendy. People want to be liked, loved, popular. They want their jobs. They want their friendship networks. They want their funding. People are, in short, cowardly and really don't want to Put, stick their necks out because they indeed might get shot down. And those of us who have courage and who do stick our necks out do get shot down and get censored and get defamed. I, for example, I was invited to speak at a university law school in Arkansas and then disinvited at the last minute. I was the only one who was an academic who could address honor killing academically Um Others were activists and advocates, and we need everything, of course. And I was disinvited because uh, three faculty members decided that I was Islamophobic. Now, here I am studying women, mainly women of color, mainly women of tribal ethnicities who are being killed or who sometimes run away, which is what I'm looking at now, what accounts for that, and what variables you know, make make a possible escape. And um, I get disinvited because I'm Islamophobic. Now, I think it wasn't just that, because the others also look at honor-based violence. I think in my case, these three academics um, just thought I was too positive about Israel. And that is absolutely forbidden, verboten. 
it is like the highest thought crime in these post-Orwellian times. And that's partly what I meant when I said that we have to look even beyond or in order to understand what's happening with women and how women or feminists are not thinking about women, we have to look at a world in which blasphemy has come back into play. Mm -hmm. If you speak the truth in Europe, it might be a criminal offense. It is now a criminal offense. This is very scary. So uh, people who, for the most part, didn't stop Stalin and didn't stop Hitler and didn't stop Castro and didn't stop Pol Pot and didn't stop Mao. I could go on. The list is long of world dictators. People just hope that they'll be left alone. They don't want to die by doing the honorable or courageous thing. I mean, understandable, but when you've got forces of darkness, of totalitarian dangerousness, which is upon us in the West now, um, I think you have to take stands. And feminists are not doing that. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're right. And I think that it's, I think that it's incredibly naive to think that you'll be spared. Do you know what I mean? Because I think, I think you're right that people are choosing to stay quiet and not to to defend other women that this is happening to you know similar things have happened to julie bindle she's also been accused of being islamophobic and of course transphobic um she's been doing work fighting violence against women for years and years and years and years and all of that is sort of tossed aside um by these accusations because she's not taken politically correct positions in certain areas just like you um yeah, but I've never been politically correct. And in the beginning, I I think, yes, I was violence against women, totally politically correct, rape, battering, sexual harassment. But I also belong to the honorable minority that opposed pornography and prostitution. Mm-hmm. This was not politically correct. This point of view did not triumph in the academy or in the media, really, and or among the gender neutral feminists. And then... I did a, I committed a really unpardonable sin. I wrote a book about men that came out in 19, uh, 1978. I was writing it in the mid-70s. This was seen at the time by radical feminists as, Phyllis, why did you waste your time on them? And I thought, gee, it's a good opportunity to try to figure out what makes them tick. And then I got involved in motherhoods. Motherhood wasn't sexy. No one wanted to really run with it because the fight to keep a boy legal was upon us it was hot and heavy so and i ended up writing three books about the hood and uh not politically correct and then reproductive prostitution i got involved in the first high profile case of surrogacy which i oppose and i've continued working in this area and many many feminists you know they sound like this well, you know, but what about infertility? What about it's hard to adopt? What about it's difficult to adopt or you have bad luck when you adopt? And what about gay male couples and genetic narcissism and lesbian couples who are infertile? On and on and on and on and on. With So therefore, that position on my part was politically incorrect. And then... Once I had a son, uh, I became a biological mom um, in 1978. Guess what? I noticed that there were possibly differences between 
boys and girls, men and women, that could be hardwired. And that, was, that doesn't mean anyone should be persecuted by society, but I noted them as they were happening, and I dared to say so. And then, worse, worse, I noted that in the feminist movement, and I write about this, and in the world in general, women are pretty inhumane to other women, just as men are inhumane to men, because women are human beings. We're as close to the angels as to the apes. And we expect a lot, so much more from another woman. And if she fails us even once, we are done with her. We are going to ostracize her and we're going to uh, gossip against her. We know how that's female social power. So again, I have to say I was politically incorrect when I became a leader of what's known as Women of the Wall in Jerusalem. And uh, politically incorrect because this was on behalf of Jewish women's religious rights in Jerusalem. And many secular feminists said, what, have you lost your mind? Have you taken the veil? I mean, are you into prayer? It turns out I was, interest I, I, I was interested in studying, and I've done that, but they didn't see the larger grandeur or scope or importance of this struggle, which is now in its 31st year. And then the 21st century hit us, and I noted the rise in ethnic bigotry towards the Jewish people on the part of left intellectuals, progressives, educated people, Jews and non-Jews, and feminists. That broke my heart, and feminists too. And I wrote a book about it, which was then seen as something I should never have done. It was telling the truth, but I was exposing the same kind of treason of the clerics, so to speak, that happened under Hitler and before Hitler. And unfortunately, that book, which came out in 2003, was prescient, uh, I'm sad to say. And then, if that wasn't trouble enough... <laughs> I started looking at honor-based violence and um, submitting affidavits for women who want political asylum from being honor-killed. I think this is fabulous feminist work, but feminists of record in the mainstream or in the media don't recognize it, don't talk about it, don't, don't quote it. It's quite unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, it's so interesting that you're bringing all this up because this has been, I mean, not even necessarily specifically to do with some of these topics, although, yes, some of these topics has been something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, just in terms of what we're allowed to speak about within feminist mm -hmm. circles. I mean, there's there's the issues like pornography, prostitution, um gender identity, uh, Islam, those kinds of issues which third wave feminists and liberal feminists are likely to, um, you know, end the left. The left will all accuse us of being phobic if we, if we talk about any of these things critically. But then even within radical feminist circles, there are some things that you're not allowed to talk about. You know, like you, you mentioned that you started thinking about some some gender uh, what would you call it gender traits that actually maybe are inherent you know maybe have to do with things like evolution and stuff like that and I think 
you know, it's, it's okay to talk about those things. You know, there's more than one thing going on. There's socialization. There's also biology. There's also evolution. And I sometimes, I mean, and yeah, lately I've been thinking that maybe we've, we've failed a little bit in terms of having that conversation and being open to uh, ideas that challenge some of our own accepted dogma. Absolutely. In Women in Madness, which came out in 1972, right, I called for women to learn to explore and accept and tolerate and celebrate difference. Because otherwise, you're a herd animal, you're a conformist, you don't think for yourself, you cannot possibly make a contribution to anything, therefore. So um, I'm still calling for that. Women have a very hard time with difference. And there's all kinds of reasons, psychological, evolutionary reasons for that. But we have to learn we cannot, how not to personalize a difference how not to end a friendship over an intellectual or ideological difference. That may be hard for men to do also at this time in history. And women especially, I mean, think of the little girl cliques that you can't disagree with the leaders, because if you do, you're out. And if you're out, you have no social world. And you see it happen in little girls, and then in pre-adolescence, and then in adolescence, and then among grown women also, and among feminists. So we had, even as paradise rose in the early part of the second wave, trashing rose as well. And it wasn't just due to um, ideological differences, which were very pitched and fever-pitched. It was due to women not knowing how to work with others who are different from themselves and then needing to do what women do, which is trash, as in bad mouth and ostracize someone who you're envious of or who's a little different than you in a way that doesn't even matter, but matters to the person. And we called it trashing. And I think that it was the reason, the psychological reason, that the vivacious, radical second wave movement ground to a halt. There are historical, economic, political, sociological reasons. But I would say psychologically, it was because we broke hearts when we expected nothing but sisterhood at its best. And I write in um, a politically incorrect feminist, I write about some devastating things that happened to me. And if it happened to me, it means it happened to others and to many others along these lines. And this may be very hard for feminists who are nostalgic or who uh, don't think clearly. Very hard for them to accept or to take or to read even. Yeah, I find it really strange and frustrating that so many feminists have trouble maintaining um, you know, civil relationships with other women when they do have differences. I don't, I mean, I personally, I don't want to write people off because we disagree politically about almost anything, to be honest. You know, I'm interested in talking to people who are diverse politically, including within feminism, but also everywhere else. I mean, I, I think it's quite interesting and it doesn't, 
really like it doesn't make me personally angry or offended when people don't agree with me. Sometimes the conversation can be frustrating if we're not listening to each other, or understanding each other, or if it isn't going anywhere. But I don't I don't really get this thing where we're we're so eager to cut ties because of disagreements. Well, but that we are. And I wanted to get back to something that you raised earlier. The balkanization of identity is what I call it. And I had actually a chapter which was too radical for the publisher, apparently, and they didn't want it for this book. How would you know who I am? How could I identify myself so you'd know me? Would it be my class origin? I don't think so. My religion? Well, not really. Perhaps, but not really. Would it be whether I'm straight or gay or bi or who I'm sleeping with? Not at all. Absolutely not at all. Those are just little tribal factions that make it impossible for groups to work with other groups who are not like themselves. Mm -hmm. It's another example of the intolerance of difference and the need to have others near you, around you, who would just like you, apparently. Otherwise, you're endangered. You know, it's not safe. So this is, you might know me. I finally decided in my case, you might know a little bit of who I am if you read my books. But even then, not true. Because all of us, like Walt Whitman said, contain multitudes. And once I've finished a book, I'm no longer there. I'm not there anymore. So this identity thing is, is far more, as they love to say, nuanced than the balkanizers would have us believe. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I think that the the kinds of people who've taken that term intersectional, intersectionality, um, which I think, you know, initially was a worthy concept when theorized and articulated by Kimberly Crenshaw, but I think that people use it today, I mean, people use it in the strangest ways, you know, in order to defend men, basically, and <laughs> to attack feminists. But, um, <laughs> uh, Turn like, of the screw. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I think that they, they like to represent themselves as being nuanced, when in fact, they're not being nuanced at all, but they're just using this term as kind of a bludgeon to shut yes. people up. Yes, yes. Well, you know, we also talked about intersectionality, but we didn't have a single word. We used to do it this way. Racism backslash sexism backslash classism backslash homophobia backslash anti-vegetarianism backslash on and on and on like that. So intersectionality is fine, but not as a bludgeon. Not as a bludgeon. And I don't think that this current, I think not just the face of male backlash, but how diversionary is this transgender cult? How, how many people are transgender in the world compared to women numerically? Who is being, how many people uh, root their identities in who they sleep with and versus people who are not doing that. I think that the balkanization of identity and the transgender cult both are enormous diversions from issues like polygamy or child marriage or forced marriage or the FGM issue or honor-based violence or honor killing, not to mention jihad, not to mention 
Jew hatred as a form of racism also. Racism is an issue, but it's not the only issue. And the man of color who rapes or who batters a woman of color is still a rapist and a batterer. And I'm not about to cut him any slack because of his color, whereas so many thinkers are. I also oppose the burqa. I lived in Kabul. I have, you know, good grounds. I oppose the burqa. I oppose niqab. I don't in good conscience oppose hijab. If you want to cover your head, be my guest. Uh, it doesn't obscure your identity, which is crucial for modern uh, post-enlightenment democracy. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. And I think that it's 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 really odd how how much has gotten lost in today's today's modern version of feminism. And I'm not sure we can get it back. And in terms of this, what your points around trans identified people, I mean, exactly. It's such a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of people who identify in this way that that identity has yet to really be defined in any kind of coherent way. So no one even knows who we're talking about. And yet we're supposed to center so-called transgender people and every single conversation and at every single event. And really what we're just doing is centering men and oftentimes white men, and they've completely usurped the movement. And we're seeing women being, I mean, I was just kicked off of Twitter and I expect this kind of thing to continue on other platforms. And, you know, I'm getting violent threats over a talk that I'm, I'm giving about gender identity in January and feminists and leftists by and large are not opposing those violent threats, but instead, you know, I'm being accused of violence myself. And these, it's so strange. Like these reversals are, are, are just. This is, this is post Orwellian. You are, we are now living in a world in which slavery is freedom and down is up. And I'm not exaggerating. And I write about this quite a lot. And it's painful when people who you, had hopes of connecting with or belonging with are like the handmaid's tale you know like those in 1984 and that includes feminists but remember i said it's diversionary that means rather than looking at the nature of violence moving in the world today, the nature of barbarism, the nature of disease, the nature of poverty, for example, these are big things. We're not looking at that. That's boring. So what we're looking at is something more uh, like fiddling while Rome is burning. This is diversionary. You know, it's uh, exotic. It's so interesting and so fake and so irrelevant really to the larger concerns of humanity. Right. And that's why people are focusing on it. It's much easier than focusing on the larger issues, which are daunting and pressing. And um, which, I mean, people are not looking at jihad, for example, in the West, because what if there is evil in the world and it's larger than us? And what if we can't control it? What if we can't stop it? What if in order to stop it in each generation, we have to fight to survive? And then not everyone is like everyone else. And we're not that virtuous in terms of accepting and tolerating barbarians. We may draw the line, 
uh, or if we're talking just feminism, we're not accepting male barbarians. Thank you very much. That's over. Not happening. So um, this is a very challenging moment in history. And the I support you. You have to tell me what happens when you give your next lecture. And if I can give you moral and sisterly support, please call on me. Thanks. Yeah, I definitely will. I mean, and I, and I should be clear in saying that, I, you know, I have a lot more supporters than I do detractors, but oddly, the detractors are quite a bit louder. They're more <laughs> vocal. They're more vocal. Yeah. Um, I think I sent you a note. You did. After I read what you wrote at Quillette. My God. I mean, th- these are really crazy times. Yeah. Well, look, you are holding the fort. You are a year younger than my son, and you are on the job. So you have cheered me up quite a bit. Oh, good. I'm so glad. You've also cheered me up quite a bit. It's so I'm so glad that we had this conversation at this particular moment, because these are all things that I've been thinking about so much lately and conversations that I'm really interested in having. So I'm really glad that we Excellent. Talked. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one more question before we wrap up, um, okay. which is how have other feminists reacted to your, your new book? Well, some, uh, at my website, there's a bunch of really nice quotes from leading second wave feminists, but there are feminist names missing in action. And I have to be honest, this book, which has gotten some very beautiful reviews, has not at all been allowed into the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. And there are no exceptions. That means no New York Times, no Washington Post, no Los Angeles Times, no New Yorker, no New York Magazine, no program on NPR. When I've, I was once on NPR for about three years uh, on a regular basis talking about the opera, like once every six weeks, once every two months. And, uh, and I've been, I mean, C-SPAN covered a book reading I had a beautiful interview on something called the Jewish Broadcasting Network. It's all up at my website. But what there is not is the kind of acknowledgement of a body of work, of a career, of a leader, of a public intellectual. And it's almost as if it's a boycott. So that should tell you something. Definitely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's so frustrating to hear that. I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me, I suppose, because this is something that happens and people kind of pretend that it's not something that happens. They pretend that mainstream media and liberal media is unbiased or less biased than right-wing media, for example, and it's not true. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm a traitor. I mean, I, my Women in Madness was a front-page New York Times book review, the first of my generation. It was written by Adrian Rich. And I had a second book, Sacred Bond, The Legacy of Baby M, that was also a front page New York Times book review. In 1990, my face was on their goddamn Sunday magazine cover, uh, together with four other feminist faces. Now, it says a lot when we get to the 21st century, and I published op-ed pieces there. Every book I ever published was reviewed there and in all the equivalent media get to the 21st century and the new anti-Semitism is not reviewed, not reviewed. Mm-hmm. My book called The Death of Feminism 
not reviewed. My book, Woman's Inhumanity to Woman, not reviewed. Now, this doesn't mean people don't know about it or don't thank me for it or don't praise me for it even. But in the where the gatekeeping that control what publishers think of an author, what publishers will pay an author, the reputation building, not to mention book sales, which is minor when it happens. It's like my work doesn't exist. And I would encourage you to read, if you haven't, read the book, and then you tell me why. (laughs) I mean... And I think one of the many reasons, not just one reason, I think there are you know pink paw prints over this boycott or blockade, but I think ageism, I think sexism, you know, it's only one face that's allowed to stand for the second wave. That's Gloria Steinem, nobody else's face. And there's thousands of us, thousands of us, very honorable, while we're still alive, not allowed to appear. And that's... Toward the end of the book, the last chapter, I wrote very fond farewells and obituaries, loving obituaries of some known and unknown feminist leaders of my time with whom I was privileged to, to work and to love and to party. So the censorship is very real and very dangerous. And I've had articles, this may have happened to you too, Articles that are neutralized, my own words, are neutralized, sanitized, cleansed of anything that might offend a group, not my voice, that's something when that happens, Mm -hmm. or simply not able to publish in certain venues, even when what I have to say is genuinely of interest to their readers. But if I already am writing about Jew hatred, if I'm already critical of Islam, even if I'm right, especially if I'm right, better not touch her. You know, it's uh, toxic. It, so in your case, if you tell a feminist truth about the transgender cult and the transgender moment, watch out, you're toxic. And if Twitter cuts you off, that means Google can cut you off. That means the so-called free, open, Wild West-like spaces of the Internet are succumbing fatefully to this kind of Orwellian censorship. Exactly. We're we're going to be publishing Samizdat. I feel that that's what I do already. You know what a Samizdat is? I Um, don't, actually. Okay. Under Soviet Russia, the intellectuals, the dissidents, would handwrite their articles (laughs) – or with Xerox machines, you know, print out their their thoughts and hand them out because it was forbidden. You couldn't be published by a, a, a Soviet publisher. And I see this same thing happening in the West today. Mm-hmm. And I think you do too. Definitely. I mean you're right that the the fact that twitter would ban me means that these other platforms are probably potentially going to do the same thing and i mean already google kind of picks and chooses what shows up in their search results Mm -hmm. um i know other women who've been 
suspended from Facebook over and over and over again. Yes. They're now seeing people getting banned from Patreon. And so their, you know, livelihoods are being taken away. Um, I just started a YouTube channel. Who knows how long, you know, they'll let me stay on there. But it's all, it's so uh, you terrifying. Say, you should say big brother. Exactly. Brother will let you stay. <laughs> yeah. The era that we're living in, and it's actually bigger than just women. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. Thank you so much for talking with me today. This has been really great, and thank you so much for all your work. And uh, I'm so glad that we, we've we been able to get in touch, and we definitely should stay in touch. <laughs> Absolutely, and we will. You just heard an interview with Phyllis Chesler, the author of 18 books, including the feminist classic Women and Madness, a longtime feminist activist and a retired psychotherapist. She is co-founder of the Association for Women in Psychology, the National Women's Health Network, and the International Committee for the Original Women of the Wall. Her most recent book is A Politically Incorrect Feminist, published by St. Martin's Press. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and review on iTunes. Show the world radical feminism is worth listening to. Feminist Current is a syndicated show produced and edited by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, BC. If your station would like to air Feminist Current, you can find episodes at audioport.org. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.